directly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com He who picks up the sword against us shall perish by it. listeners and welcome to episode 97 of the Grimdark Podcast. It's James here and I'm actually going solo again today. I did promise we'd get another episode in before Gen Con came around and uh, there's a few things about the game to talk about and just with my travel both for work and also coming up for Gen Con and uh, with Mike's work and the gaming we were doing it just didn't really work out to get a showing with both of us. So I did want to uh, go through my promise to actually uh, do another show before Gen Con so that's what we're doing today. Uh, there's a few things to talk about. So hopefully you still enjoy the show, and we'll be back to normal hopefully in the coming week with a review of everything at Gen Con, including obviously the launch of Wrath and Glory. If you are listening to the show for the first time, this is a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium. We cover the role-playing systems around Warhammer 40k, uh, which at the moment is the upcoming launch of Wrath and Glory, uh, but in the past has been the series of games produced by Fantasy Flight Games. Every episode we talk a bit about the game system, we look at character builds, we look at systems, uh, with a new game coming out, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, now, before I get to that, I do also talk about what we do in our gaming group in the sort of intervening period. And I've only actually had one game, or sorry, I'll just say a few sessions of a game uh, since we last recorded, but it's still something I wanted to, to mention. Uh, so you recall, if you listened to our last show, that I've been planning for a, uh, a Battletech RPG or Time of War RPG campaign uh, that I ran just after our last show was, uh, was run, and also twice since then. And it's sort of been uh, an interesting start to a game. It's certainly created a lot of points to talk about. So first off, uh, I ran a sort of trial game, uh, about a three-hour session as the first session, that was sort of a, I guess, a plot expedition to sort of start off where I wanted to sort of have the game go from. And one of the players in the group contacted me uh, a day or so later and basically said, look, I'm just not enjoying the game. Um, It's not for me. Uh, and I look, I sort of expressed a bit of disappointment that he sort of only really got three hours into the game before deciding it wasn't for him. But you know, that's the case. Uh, I'm not going to really be able to sort of change the the attitude there. I talked about what the game was going to be like, and he basically said that's not really what he wants to play. That's fine. Uh, I talked with the rest of the group about what they wanted to do because uh, we've had a couple of chops and changes here and there in the past with our with our midweek group, and um, this would probably be the third game setting that we've started here that this player has basically said to us if this is what we're playing I'm going to drop out of the group uh, and in the past we've always sort of gone around and played something that he wanted to play instead and the other players were a little bit sort of I wouldn't say distressed but certainly they wanted to keep playing this game and give it more of a go uh, and on top of that I actually was contacted by another player in our group or sorry a former player in our group who'd actually dropped out about 18 months ago actually over issues with this other player 
uh, who was also a mad keen Battletech fan. So he was quite keen to give it a go. So at this point in time, we've actually rejigged our group somewhat. So that player has dropped out for the time being. New player has come in and we've run a couple of sessions. And I would like to say I feel quite successfully. Uh, one of the things I did to sort of get the game going was that uh, two of the players in the group are not overly familiar with the Battletech universe. Uh, sort of, you know, obviously they've seen the, the images and played the computer games, but don't really know much about the fluff behind the universe. So one of the things I, I actually did, um, if you're not familiar with Battletech, one of the sort of elements when it comes to their their version of fast and light travel as such, or how they cover big distances in, in short periods of time, is that they have a, a jump ship technology, these ships that can basically jump 30 or so light years in an instant. But their technical limitation is that they can only do so from the outer edge of a solar system outside the sun's gravity field, uh, and each time they jump they have to wait several days to recharge as well, uh, collecting solar energy. So what that means is that normally you'd start on a planet, you would take what's known as a dropship that would take you to the outer edge of the system, and, and that's really limited by conventional science physics, so the dropship accelerates at 1G uh, until you're halfway there, then turns around and decelerates at 1G until you reach the jump ship, um, meaning it can take 8 to 9 days to sort of get from a planet to the jumping point. Then there's a series of instant jumps with the number of days in between as the as the jump ship recharges, and then finally another drop ship passage of several days back into the solar system, which means that travel can actually take um, weeks, if not months, for, for a particularly long travel. Uh, and because of the limitations of communications in this setting, it can be hard to sometimes get live communication out in the deep of space. So I had it in my setting that uh, when the group reached their first major destination after travel, that the... Uh, local communication service, which is Comstar in the Battletech universe, basically forwarded the dropship um, all the latest news, everything that's happened in the time they've been travelling. And I actually wrote a whole series of, of news articles to try and set the tone about what was happening in the universe at the time. But I interspaced that with... Um, I made up ads, you know, ads for movies, ads for technology, ads for companies in between each report. And I use that as a methodology of trying to get everybody sort of on the same page as to what the Battletech universe was like. And often with these sort of older games, I, I look at when the game was created. I mean, Battletech really came around in the 80s. And so in some ways you could almost say it is the future of the 1980s in the same way that Cyberpunk was, for example. So, you know, when talking about things like a, a movie trailer, I, I really took inspiration from 80s action movie trailers as well. So, And look, the group really enjoyed that particular thing. It was a good way to start the game off for our second session, and it, I think it really got people across the line with what the setting was about, and we've been playing a few sessions since and having a good time. So that'll be a, a continuing part of our, our regular gaming group. Um, once Wrath and Glory is, is fully released and going, I'd like to sort of get that going too, but uh, in the meantime we'll sort of stick with our, our current campaigns and that means for the time being our, our Dungeons and Dragons campaign is on a uh, indefinite hiatus for the time, anyway, going forward. Uh, anyway, so let's get back to today's show. So I'm going to do a quick news section. There is a few things to talk about, particularly with Wrath and Glory. Uh, then I had promised that we're going to do a deep dive into one of the upcoming systems for Wrath and Glory, and in this case that's the Threatening Task system. Uh, then I want to do a review of Blessings Unheralded, the free RPG day module which came out last month. Uh, then actually, the uh, an issue has stemmed from my own group, uh, from 
that particular gaming group where in the past we've asked people to write in or, or contact us with their own issues and we've tried to talk about them on the show. So I'm going to do things a bit differently this time. I'm going to tell you guys about my gaming group issue that I've run across and I'm going to encourage you to jump onto our various social media pages or email and give me your thoughts on how you think we should tackle this particular uh, problem within our group. Not the one I mentioned the start there but a different one that sort of stemmed from that same game then i'll do a regular community section and, and close up the show so once again just me tonight um hopefully you still enjoy it and uh let's get straight into the news command acknowledged accessing imperial archives so we'll start with the wrath and glory news and by far the most important thing to note is as of the recording of this show there is limited time left on the pre-order so the pre-order itself ends at 10 a.m central time on july 30th which is two or three days away from now as I'm recording. Uh, So if you haven't already pre-ordered the game, and there is still time to do so, I would encourage you to jump in and and do it now because there are definitely some things you get with those pre-orders that you won't get in the future or you'll have to pay more to get in the future as well. So if you haven't pre-ordered, do so now. There is still time to organize the pickup for Gen Con, I believe. And they have also said that uh, you will be able to actually buy limited copies at Gen Con as well, and they will space those out over the course of the four days. So it's not like they're all going to go first thing on the Thursday morning and there'll be no chance the rest of the weekend. But uh, you know the opportunity will soon be there to get Wrath and Glory into your hands. Uh, Blessings Unheralded has now reached the Drive-Thru RPG store. So once again, this is the free RPG Day module. Uh, I'm going to be doing a review of that shortly on the show, but uh, if you haven't yet checked it out, there's an opportunity to jump onto Drive-Thru RPG and pick it up. And I've actually seen a couple of people have actually posted playthroughs of Blessings Unheralded onto YouTube as well. So uh, a quick YouTube search will give you a chance to actually see the Wrath and Glory system in play if you haven't had a chance to see it otherwise yet. Uh, the June design diary for uh, for Wrath and Glory was regarding uh, campaigns. The uh, I, I guess the campaign setting material because uh, Ross has sort of pointed out in the designer diary that his methodology of writing is to have a story, you know, a campaign story with a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, and this may, for example, inform into how things like the Dark Imperium or the uh, the Doom of the Eldar storyline are, are portrayed going forward. Some players actually jumped into the conversation thread and sort of said, oh, they prefer a much more open-ended, here is the setting, now go, just go and you know write your own open-ended campaigns within that. And I'm sure that's something you'll still be able to do. Uh, it's just that uh, the designer diaries are led me to believe that the design intent here was to give players a full-scope narrative that they can work within or if they choose to then go and work outside of as well. But by having that campaign narrative there, it exists as a, as I mentioned before, a beginning, middle and end that you can build your own campaign campaign play around. We've also seen the announcement there will be a Wrath and Glory starter set. So this starter set encompasses some of the features that were previously included in the all-in pack for the pre-order. So there will be a way to get some of those things outside of the pre-order going forward obviously at a, at a higher cost or, or more difficulty to achieve I guess uh, but uh, that will also be available to you too we saw the full table of contents posted for uh, Wrath and Glory just the other day on the Ulysses North America Twitter feed so I'll include a link there um, in the show notes for that so you'll be able to see what the sort of content of the book is and it's looking like a pretty hefty hefty book as well it's over 400 pages looking at just the page count in the table of contents so that's a substantial book you know compared to the existing uh, 40k RPGs as well 
Uh, we also saw some examples of the campaign cards. So we know that the deck is going to be, I think, 55 cards total, and they showed nine examples. So the idea with campaign cards is that at the start of the game, every player gets dealt a campaign card. They'll usually have some sort of trigger, like, you know, if this is happening, you can play this card to do this. There'll be a mechanical benefit. In some cases, there is a mechanical benefit and a mechanical drawback as well, in which case maybe it's balanced so that the benefit is better than just a standard campaign card. Uh, and then each new session, you would then go and get a new campaign card. So I, I guess it's like a narrative prompt that you can use during your campaign or during your session to sort of give the players or give the characters an extra buy-in towards what's happening in that particular session. So, yeah, a lot happening with Wrath and Glory. I think really we're probably going to see the end of the news cycle now until the game is launched next week because I believe that most of the guys from Ulysses will be travelling to Indy for the event. But, uh, yeah, certainly a lot has happened in this last week and with the pre-order ending soon, we're going to start to see books hitting shelves, PDFs going up on drive-through RPG. So be a good chance to actually get our hands on the game for the first time. Uh, on the Cubicle 7 slide for the uh, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, We've seen some more previews on their webpage, so things like they've talked about the different career options, for example. Um, we mentioned before in a previous show the mechanical resolution. Uh, looks like the career options, for example, are quite well uh, expanded upon, not just a standard, you know, uh, uh, basic careers that came from the original RPG. They've certainly given a lot more choices as far as I guess more adventure careers are concerned. Uh, and according to the bottom of all the posts they've said, they're still targeting a PDF release in July with a physical release in August. You know, July has got three days left as I'm counting here, so maybe they'll still make it, maybe they won't. Um, I was sort of led to believe that you know, the best time for me to contact those guys to talk about that game was going to be after the PDF came out. So I'll try and lock them down at Gen Con as well and see what more we can find out about Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Uh, on the Games Workshop side, I think that the biggest news really has been the launch of Kill Team, which has come out just today as I'm recording. This is sort of probably one of the biggest launches for the 40k line since 8th edition, and as we mentioned on the show previously, we've heard that this is going to be a major supported line for Games Workshop going forward, whereas other game systems have sort of come and gone through stores, gone web-only like Necromunda quite quickly. Uh, they plan to keep Kill Team a, a consistent and developing, I guess, uh, game uh, along with 40k moving forward. So we saw the launch of the main box. There was a Sector Mechanicus um, terrain pack. We've had two kill teams on top of the ones that come in the box, so a Space Wolf kill team and an Orc kill team. Interesting, I noted that each of those kill teams come with terrain as well. Uh, and then a few other accessories like a, a miniature box to carry your, your teams in as well. Uh, I picked up the starter set, and I also picked up the Sector Mechanicus terrain set, because that's one terrain set I didn't actually have much from previously. Uh, I've had a chance to build some of the minis today, but I haven't actually had a chance to digest the book a lot from just flicking through it looks like the rule system is pretty consistent with 8th edition 40k only that you sort of swap back and forth between individual figures rather than doing a whole turn phase by phase and the next person does their turn phase by phase you know, I'm more interested to see how the, the campaign the campaign rules for it were like you know doing a, a Necromunda or Blood Bowl style ongoing campaign of Kill Team and 
speaking with the local uh, Games Workshop store manager, he said he's played a few sessions of Kill Team. He's been really happy with it. Um, I was sort of expecting earlier on something closer to Shade Spy, which is more sort of board game-like, but this one does appear to be, yeah, definitely still um, war game-like. And i got to say, the terrain that came in the uh, in the main box, while a little bit difficult to build, like it, it harkens back to the old uh, Imperial Sector... Uh, like the the manufactorum and the administratum building ruins that I've built in the past where you're literally sort of gluing pieces of plastic together and then having to put them on the table because gravity will pull them apart. Uh, it was a bit like that with building the terrain, but it's nice-looking terrain. It's very modular. It sort of comes in stack layers that you can sort of build up in different configurations. So I was really impressed with the terrain. The other miniatures, I mean, it's a standard... Uh, Skatari Ranger set and a standard Jeans to the Cult set. I noted, for example, that all of the miniatures in these boxes are actually colorized. So the they did the Skatari on red plastic. They did the Jeans to the Cultists on light gray plastic. They did the drain on sort of an, a, uh, and not Noka, uh, like a, a tan plastic. And then when I got the Center Mechanicus box set, that was all like a very dark gray, almost metallic plastic as well. So it looks like for people that just want to build the miniatures and play without painting them, they have actually allowed for some colour coding. I'm mean, interested to see, I didn't get the Orc or Space Wolf set yet. Uh, originally, I thought the Space Wolf set might have been like a Space Wolf Tactical Marine set, but I realised it's just a standard Reaver, Primaris Reaver set with Space Wolf transfers. So I might still pick that up because I can use that for my Ultramarines, for example, or one of my other um, Space Marine chapters like Dark Angels or whatever. But uh, yeah, no, it looks so good so far, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what becomes of this from a, a both a campaign point of view, but also from a competition point of view, because Shadespire has really stood out in that it's the first sort of derivative game which has actually got its own competition base going really well. I mean, okay, Horus Heresy does as well, certainly, but um, yeah, certainly I, I did see when I went along to the mini event that was run for the opening of the Games Workshop Mega Store in Texas, that there was definitely a, a Shade Spire uh, contest or, or competition there. And I'll be interested to see where the Kill Team also gets that going forward because it's a lot easier to transport, you know, a small up to 20 miniature Kill Team that is to take your entire army to a convention, especially if you're traveling long distance as well. You know, miniatures don't necessarily travel very well, especially if you start looking at things like the Incarn from the uh, from the Eldar side, which is you know literally held up by its scenery rather than anything else. So yeah, so I mean, I'll be watching Kill Team as it moves forward. Mike's very keen on it too to check it out. Uh, and it, you know, for me, with Age of Sigma Second Edition being the other major Games Workshop event right now, which is not interesting me that much. I did pick up Daughters of Cain for. Age of Sigma previously, but I haven't really gotten into playing that yet. Uh, and yeah, a few of us said we might give it a look with the second edition. I am really still focused on the 40k side, and it's good to have something else to sort of really focus on right now, while Age of Sigma is really a focal point for GW. Uh, okay, moving on to computer gaming, and it was brought to my attention actually by Mike in this last month that there is a new game out uh, on Steam called Gladius Relics of War. Uh, it is, it's been published by Slytherin, which was the same group who published Sanctus Reach, uh, and has been created by a mob called Proxy Studios, which I didn't see has done previous 40k games before, and I couldn't really find much of what they have done. It's a turn-based strategy game. 
the graphics look good from what I've seen. It's got very positive reviews on Steam so far. Um, I haven't actually had a chance yet to, to pick it up and, and download it and play it yet, but it, from just reading the reviews alone, it sounds like it's really hit the mark on, on 40k gaming in I think much the same way that Sanctus Reach did too so that was a great game you know I wish they'd open up that more to some more factions and some more settings as such but uh, certainly it looks like Gladius Relics of War is sort of going down that same path and I did also see some more news about the or some, some preview videos about the new Space Hulk game as well which is a, a multiplayer game too so uh, they are still churning out some computer game lines but certainly yeah Gladius Relics of War really sort of was a, it was it came in by stealth it's ready to go now it's not in Steam Early Access it's available for sale I think 39 US dollars from memory which is a, a relatively cheap Steam game uh, so yeah I mean if you'd like 40k gaming do check that one out anyway that's about it for the news side so let's get into our first system discussion for Wrath and Glory knowledge is power hide well so we've got something of an exclusive for you, I'm pretty sure here. Um, threatening Tasks is the setting or system we're going to be talking about from Wrath and Glory, and I don't believe it's been shown anywhere. It certainly didn't appear in Blessings Unheralded. It wasn't in the session that I played at Origins, and I haven't seen it yet in any of the actual plays that have gone online through YouTube as such. So, uh, yeah, you, you might be hearing about it for the first time, you might not be, but it's certainly one of the systems that, that uh, really interested me when I first read about it and I wanted to talk about it on today's show. So what actually is a threatening task? The closest I can harken this back to from a system point of view is from my early days of playing 4th edition Dungeons and Dragons where they introduced this concept called skill challenges. So D&D has traditionally been a game setting which is built around having a whole bunch of rules to support combat. You know, you're going back to second ed D&D, pretty much your non-combat skills were simply a few skills with a roll, whereas all your other stats were built around you know, how much damage you could take, how much damage you could deal, what options you had in combat. Uh, and 4th edition was very much the same. 4th edition was very much a tactical game, but there was this rule set there called skill challenges where if I wanted to have a an almost narrative scene or a series of micro scenes or vignettes where the characters go and you know accomplish a key task that can be done through a series of skill roles that then accompany or don't have to but they you know hopefully would accompany narration by both the GM and the players and and that is similar to what is intended with a threatening task from what I can tell so a threatening task is where you have a situation that you want to resolve narratively if possible where there is a a real risk where you know a number of things have to be achieved and the GM really wants to ratchet up the tension you know that you wouldn't need to put a threatening task into every single session but it is something that's there as a, as a toolbox for you to use uh, if you do want to have that sort of big climax scene and you don't just want to have another big fight or you want to have a big fight but you want to have a big lead up to it where you know there's lots of tension and uncertainty about will we actually reach this point so Threatening tasks have a, different, a couple of different ways of doing it, but I'm going to focus on, for the moment, the, the main way. So there's really three steps to a threatening task. The first is the GM needs to decide what is the setup? You know, what is going on? What are the players actually trying to achieve? So I'm going to sort of extrapolate a bit on one of the examples I've got. So I'm going to say the, the group is trying to stop a cult from summoning a powerful demon. Okay, that's that, that, that's the objective. There's a big big cult group 
hundreds and hundreds of followers all engaged in this ritual to try and summon this demon and the group wants to stop that. Now, doing a combat against hundreds and hundreds of followers is going to get pretty boring. Even if you use mob rules and you can kill a whole bunch of guys in one turn, it's just going to be a lot of rolling, you know, a lot of rounds of just throwing dice at the table, hoping to get the good result. So how can we make that something that is more interesting? So that brings us to the second step. The GM needs to decide upon a number of narrative steps that are going to move the characters from where they start to where they want to be. So let's take that example. There's a group, there's a big cult, they're doing some sort of ritual. Okay, so let's say, for example, that the players are somehow locked from getting access to the cult. You know, they're inside a chamber or up in a, a spy tower that the group can't get to because everything is locked down. So we're going to need some sort of technical test in order to bypass security or get the lift up to that level, um, in which case they can then access the, the cult activity. Okay, so they're there now, but there is a group of several hundred followers between them and the, the core ritual components. So we're going to say maybe a, a combat test, a weapon skill test, or a ballistic skill test, because they are both skills, to just run and gun, punch your way through the weakest cultists to sort of reach the inner circle. Then maybe some sort of intimidate role or uh, leadership potentially to try and cow the the lieutenants into, you know, stepping aside to allow the group access to, you know, the, the, the core ritual itself. Maybe some sort of law skill to understand what's actually happening in the ritual or what the focus point is to act to actually go after. Then maybe like a, a strength test or something to actually break the key ritual component that will end the ritual and then end off with a climactic fight against the master cultists, for example. Uh, so there you go. You've got you know five steps there. You've got a, a technical test, a combat test, a social test, a intellectual test, followed by a, a, a physical test as such. So uh, that that could be your five steps. So that that is the sort of way as it's presented in the book. There is a sidebar that says there is another way of doing it. Okay, and that is to say, I'm the GM saying here is a situation: big cult ritual going on. How do you guys think you want to approach this? Uh, and the other, they need to decide at the start because the way the actual system works impacts what skills they might use or, or what things they might be doing in order to try and get around this circumstance. So the last step is that the GM needs to decide what is the base difficulty. You know, So the first action they're going to do is going to have a different number that the GM sets. From that point forward, the other roles are usually derivative of that first role. So if all things are going well, the difficulty number should stay the same. Things start to go poorly, the difficulty suddenly starts to ramp up. And, and I'll go through how that happens in a moment. So first off, this system is designed to allow multiple players to shine. And that's done through the use of Wrath Cards. So Wrath Cards normally have other uses in the game, but in this case, every Wrath Card is printed with multiple keywords. We've mentioned keywords on the show before, so these could be things like Imperium, Xenos, Adeptus Ministorum, any of those sort of things. And every single player is going to have multiple of those. And the card's going to have some of those. So at the start of the first round of the threatening task, and there are usually as many rounds as there are tasks, standardly, that could change as well. But the GM will draw a Wrath card and say, okay, guys, these are the keywords I've drawn. So we've got Imperium, we've got Astra Militarum. Okay, so first off, 
the only characters that can or you need to pick a lead character for the for this first task and that character must have one of those keywords okay so say it's imperium and you're playing imperial group that's great that means everybody has a choice of going in there but then you've also got the fact that if a character has multiple of those keywords they're going to get a bonus for their role as well so you might say okay well You've, I've drawn, you know, Imperium and I've drawn Astra Militarum. So, yep, my guards person in the group is straight away going to have a bonus. Now, they might not be the best tech person. You know, there might be, for example, an Adeptus Mechanicus character who also has Imperium and therefore can act, but doesn't get the benefit of also having the, the Astra Militarum keyword. So, you've got to then weigh up how much better is that character than the guards person at that technical role or you know, some other way to swing it. And this really comes back to that second method I talked about where you sort of go for the narrative mode of the players setting what are the tasks they're going to achieve because the players might draw the card, look at the keywords, look at the characters that can act and say, okay, where we're up to right now, what can those characters do in order to progress this task along? You know, what's, it, what's within their skill set? And I think that really does help to make sure that every player gets to shine. Okay, what about the flip side? What happens if I draw a card and nobody shares that keyword? So first off, that should be a rare circumstance, even if you've got a small group, because when you have a smaller group, you actually draw more Wrath cards. So there's a table in the book which says, you know, for this number of players, you draw this number of cards. And obviously the minimum you're always going to draw is one. But there may be a circumstance where, say, for example, I'm playing an all-orc group or an all-eldar group, and I draw that card which has... Imperium and Astra Militarum. Okay, so I've got nothing that matches. So for that moment, for that task in the scene, nobody can progress the task. They can still be doing things. They can still be running around, shooting at people, looking things up. They just haven't progressed the task to the next step. And that means you've lost a round, but you haven't completed the task. And that will come into a moment in how you resolve multiple tasks in a round. And this is not a bad thing. It just means that the players get to describe what's happening in the action that is locking them out of being able to go. Likewise, if you've got you know that dedicated actor who is acting on the task because of the keywords, the other players can still say what they're doing, and you can still make dice rolls. Those dice rolls are not going to move the task forward, but they can, for example, generate additional glory through getting exalted icons or you know or shifting dice as well. So there are benefits to still describing what the other characters do. And of course, other characters can still assist the primary actor with their role as well. There are mechanics in the game system for having multiple characters acting to achieve the same outcome, and that can still be done too. So, say for example, you succeed, you've completed the step, okay, next round, you move on to the next step, you draw a new Wrath card, you start over, you compare the keywords, go from there. Okay, what are, what are the variations to this? First off, if you get a very good roll on your your base task resolution, so you're going to get you know multiple sixes, you're going to get exalted icons, you're going to get six on your your wrath dice, that can actually result in being able to complete multiple tasks in a single phase or a single single round of the task resolution. So you do that, and straight away that you can draw a new wrath card, pick a new primary actor, and resolve another task, and you can potentially keep going like that as well. Um, but you know, obviously that's unlikely. So that's a good way of getting through multiple tasks and potentially completing the whole threatening task early. Conversely, 
you can get a complication. You can get a one on your wrath dice, okay? And when you get a complication, you've got to roll to see what that complication is. And it can be one of three things. First off, it can be what's known as a critical obstruction. Basically, everything goes wrong. Um, you know, the, the, the game is shifted, literally, the group has to start the whole threatening task over from the start. It could be that they've lost all their progress and have to literally go back to the first step, or it could be that the objective has rapidly changed because of a set of circumstances, and now a different set of five or so tasks are required in order to resolve the thing in a positive way. So this is obviously the worst case. Secondly, you can get what's known as a hindrance. And the hindrance means that for the remainder of that task, all the difficulty numbers go up. So this is what I mentioned before about how you set a base difficulty at the start, but certain things can cause that difficulty number to go up. And a hindrance is the most likely circumstance. Finally, best bet is you get a delay, which only means that you've lost the time, you've got to keep acting, but you know you haven't been set backwards at all. So what happens if you get to the situation where you know, you're in the last round of a threatening task and you've still got two or three actions to complete. You know, sure, you can pray you're going to get sixes and, and exalted icons, but uh, that's not really going to you know, be realistic. So what you can do is you can declare what's known as a desperate act. So the primary actor can say, I'm going to try and complete this many tasks in this one turn. Okay, so I'm going to say there's three left. I'm going to try and complete all three in this, in this phase. Now, there are rules in Wrath and Glory for taking multiple actions at once. Basically, you just simply add additional plus two difficulty for each additional action you want to take. It works the same way when you're shooting at multiple opponents. So I could say, okay, I'm going to try and complete all three of these actions. I'm going to add plus two difficulty for each additional action for a total of plus four in this case. If you can do that, fantastic. You've completed that, that task in the time required. If you fail, it's basically the equivalent of having rolled a critical obstruction. Uh, and you can only attempt a desperate act once per Threatening, threatening task resolution. So, you know, don't just jump into the first round of threatening tasks and say, hey guys, let's just try and do all five tasks in one round because I've got a good pull. You know, use the time you've got. Save desperate acts for what they are. You know, literally, desperation right as the, you know, the, the, the bomb reaches, you know, three seconds to go, whatever the case may be. It is a Hail Mary pass to try and resolve the action. And that's really it. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a neat little system for giving you that nice narrative version of play with real tension, you know, not just sitting there and rolling dice, you know, your whole idea is that you describe actions as they occur. You know, you say, this is what we do, and the GM will tell you about how the environment will change. You know, the GM doesn't have to sit at the start of the game and say, okay, guys, you go to this, then this, and this, and this, and this. They might just say, okay, next action is this. And then once you've achieved that, they're going to say, okay, guys, the next thing you need to do is this. It may, it may not be obvious at first. And even if you're going for the standard methodology of setting what your five tasks are at the start, if the players come up with a better idea, I would certainly say, you know, as a GM, you should, you should encourage players to use that sort of imagination and then adjust. You know, allow them to sort of take different tasks. Or, you know, my preference would be simply just start the whole threatening task with a description and allow the players to come up with what their actions are going to be. But you have got both options presented in the book. And so... Um, from what I've seen about um, you know any adventures going forward, they will probably have some sorts of threatening tasks described in those adventures. So when you start looking at um, when we see, I think the the there's a, an orc adventure coming with the the main release. I think we've got I think it's called Dark Tides coming later on. You know I'm hoping that we'll see some threatening tasks there where they literally say here are some examples of task 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 task. 
where the players can get a better idea about what a threatening task is supposed to be. But I mean, look, it's one of the things I actually liked about 4th edition D&D was the whole um, skill challenge mechanic, and I think it's even better here in this particular case. It's one of the reasons I want to talk about it on the show, because it was really the one mechanic that stood out to me as, well, that's cool, I really like that. Well, sorry, there are more mechanics than that, but it's one of those ones that stood out, and I said, that's really cool, I really like that. So hopefully you get a bit of uh, fun out of threatening tasks you get to use them in your own game as well. I'll certainly be using them in mine. All right, let's get into the review. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So both Mike and I were lucky enough to pick up a review copy of Blessings Unheralded during the uh, the free RPG day. And from the point of view of reviewing it, I want to sort of quickly mention the fact that really the, the product has two key parts. The first part is quick play rules for Wrath and Glory. Uh, and the second part is a adventure which is designed to be run in the typical sort of length of, say, a convention session, so sort of three to four hours. Uh, because we're going to be talking about Wrath and Glory more with the launch of the actual book and going through the full-on system, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the, the rules component, which is quite a large part of the actual supplement because it's, it's a 32-page booklet, and the first 20 pages are the, the quick play rules and the remaining pages are the adventure. I want to focus on the adventure and give uh, a spoiler-free as possible review of the adventure itself. Um, so, And also just, just the product in general, because you get a few things with it. First off, you get some very nice character folios, six character folios, which give you, you know, full detail about the six characters, which I believe are all Tier 3. We've spoken about uh, tiers in in uh, Wrath and Glory before, but basically they are a mid-tier character group, uh, including a couple which have been ascended from lower tiers as well, which is a good chance to sort of see how leveled up characters from lower tiers work together in a in a higher tier game. Uh, so they're all nice, presented, nice artwork, um, you know, good quality from the actual physical product. Uh, my only complaint with the physical product itself is that it comes with a token sheet to use for combat. And that's not, it's cardboard, but it's not perforated. So, and they're circular tokens, so you'd have to attack it with a pair of scissors to cut out all of your um, your various tokens. And, uh, I mean, the tokens are double-sided, but I don't, they're not like they have a different state on each side. So it's not like you've got to turn them over, because it's more, more from the point of view, I've seen token sheets before where they're double-sided, like a, a wounded and non-wounded version. And that's hard when you've got to print it yourself if you buy like a PDF or on-demand product, because you can't necessarily guarantee your printer will line up both sides of the sheet. So in this case, the physical one is double-sided, but there's no... It's just a mirror of the previous page. So um, not not so much issue there. Uh, and then you've got... A, the inside of the actual folder itself is a is a map for um, for one of the combats, or for the actually really the only real planned combat in the session as well. So I'm going to drop something of a small spoiler. I think it's going to be pretty obvious. Uh, so basically, the, the expedition or the hook to lead the characters into the game is that... They have been sent to a hospital on um, a hive world in order to recover one of their allies who was injured in a previous mission for whatever shadowy group they worked for, and they're basically going back to recover her. And it will become very obvious quickly that there is a disease, um, or an epidemic or a plague, running through this particular hospital, which is a hospital for, or ha- includes a... Um, uh, a ward for exotic diseases. So, given the name of the adventure is Blessings Unheralded, and there's obvious illness, uh, I don't think it's a big uh, bow to draw to say that there is a chaos encounter in this particular adventure, and that really is the 
uh, I, I guess the, the crux of the of the overall disease. Yes, it's obviously tied with Nurgle, and there's all sorts of little, both numerical and um, oh, I mean, what people people will quickly start to see influence of Nurgle's diseases on the environment around them. So uh, now it's a three act adventure. Uh, the first act is primarily uh, getting to understand the the environment. Um, actually, I, I do to like. Sorry, sorry, there is actually an option for an early fight, really just with a few um, minor enemies that will give players a good chance to to, to test the system. So there is sorry, um, two fights in the, in the adventure overall. Um, but then you've also got uh, good expedition in terms of introducing the key NPCs, and there are some good NPCs, I think, in this adventure, too. It's been well put together from that point of view. Um, the second second act is really investigating the disease further, um, and then the third act is, I guess, a bit of a, a race against time to prevent a calamity from befalling the world. Um, overall, I guess my only real complaint with the adventure itself is that the it's one of those games where it introduces the overall villain before they are established as the villains. They appear to be an ally, and then later the players realise that they're actually a villain. Um, I feel almost that there are too many clues early on that would point to this person being the villain, and I would think that a canny group of players would quickly say, straight away, this person is definitely the the, you know, the villain, we want to basically stop them now. Uh, whereas the adventure is also sort of predicated on the fact that the, while the group might be suspicious, they have no ability to act until later, uh, and then they have to actually act quite quickly. And I sort of feel that a, a, a skilled or proactive group would quickly say, look, this person is doing enough that we need to actually act right now, and that could sort of throw the adventure someone off kilter and, and really eliminate the need for the third act if the GM can't sort of lock that down quickly, because you know it's not like one of those ones where the person is sort of introduced on the side. There's, there's a whole scene where the players interact with them first. It even has notes in the scene that you know players who make a good role might identify this person is lying to them but they can't tell about what but knowing my players you know my players would want to sort of drill down further and, and question the person and, and would not just accept the whole you think something's suspicious but the person's going to leave the room now sort of response um but overall look i, I think it's a, it's a well put together adventure it's it's quite linear um you know it's not a lot of sort of option for going down divergent paths, but at the end of the day, as an intro module to the system, uh, and a, a con game length module, you probably don't want to have it being too open-ended as such, you want to really want to have a more of a, um, a theme park than a sandbox, and, and that's what Blessed's Unheralded is, it's more of a chance to sort of get a feel for the system with a, a lightweight combat at first, and then a sort of a, a more tense and time-focused combat at the end, um, and you know, one of the things I think players I've seen who play the game struggle to get their head around is, well, not struggle, but just it, probably the first thing you want to learn in combat is there are many ways that you can take out multiple enemies at once, and um, the you know both the major combats in Blessed Unheralded are set up around fighting large groups, and so it's a good chance for the players to get a feel for that taking on mobs thing early on and uh, and work out how you can sort of reduce their numbers quickly and not have to slog away for several rounds. Um, but overall, yeah, there's not a lot to really say more about this. There is actually a review on YouTube, which I'll link to in the show notes, that they do review this as well, but their their review is focused on the system. Um, so obviously, the system's coming out very quick, very soon, but if you want to sort of see the take that this other person has had on the, uh, the system and, you know, 
what they think of it from as it's presented in Blessings Unheralded, then I encourage you to check out that review. Uh, but overall, I think that it's it's a good little adventure. Uh, if you didn't get it as part of Drive Through RPG, um, sorry, as part of um, Free RPG Day, I would jump on a Drive Through RPG and look at picking it up because it's a good intro adventure. I mean, being that it's made for Tier Three might mean that if you're wanting to build your own group for it, you know, it, it does sort of limit you as to where you would place that group. But if you just want to sort of have a sample adventure of Wrath and Glory to to get a feel for it, then it's a good one to start with. Uh, anyway, I hope that helps, and uh, let's move on to the final part of the show. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. All right, guys. I mentioned to you at the start of the show that um, I've actually run into a, a little problem in my regular gaming group and I thought you know in the past people on the show have sort of contacted us to talk about their issues and I thought instead of doing that let's this time I'm going to tell you about my issue and anyone that's got any sort of thoughts on it can feel free to jump onto our our Facebook page or onto our Twitter account or email us and give us your thoughts on how you think would be the best way to handle this particular issue because it's something that's sort of really um it it bothers me I gotta say um to the point that you know it does somewhat impact my ability to enjoy a game that I am actually really quite enjoying running. So I'll give you the, the bit of background to it first. So one of the players in our um, midweek role-playing group has sort of joined our group in the past year or so. Uh, a friend of one of the players, but really hasn't role-played with us ever before that, and sort of had lots of mixed role-playing experiences throughout his life. And I guess one of his sort of regular complaints is the fact that he has started a lot of campaigns with people that have just died pretty quickly. You know, done two, three, four sessions, and then no one's ever gotten together again, no one's ever played again, and the whole game has just basically died. And in fact, the D&D game we've been playing now for, you know, 19 or 20 months has been the longest sort of campaign of a game he's ever really played. And this sort of history of, of short-term or, or short-lived games has really affected the way he goes into any particular game. So this player is really prone to the concept of min-maxing, you know, and not in a way that I think he designs, he intends to be offensive. I think it's more in a way that he doesn't want to make a basic starter character and then go through leveling them up to the point that they become gooded because that process takes time and in his experience invariably the game will never get that time because the game will eventually stop you know or or, will collapse pretty quickly and therefore he spent all that time making a basic starting realistic normal character that really never gets to become fun to play Uh, and so whenever he goes into a new game setting or a new game system he'll always be asking the questions of okay how can I make a character which does this absolutely the best it can possibly be uh, and one of the things I find when I introduce players to new systems is that I like to sort of, you know, have them play through the system the first time cold. Like, you know, I'll talk them through character creation, but, you know, there are plenty of people who like to create five or six or seven or eight or 15 or 30 characters when they first put up a system just to really work out how to make the best use of the mechanics in character creation. And, you know, I'd rather say, look, guys, let's just go through the book as it describes, build characters, and just see how they play, because that was the sort of design intent behind the system in the first place. Now, yep, I will admit some game systems, really, you can build a bad character, um, and the a Time of War role-playing system we're using for Battletech is not the best 
character creation system on the market by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's horribly confusing. It has contradictions. But in any case, uh, this particular player has said, okay, I'm playing a, a mech warrior in this game and I've gone for... Every every single time I've gotten three points, or he's gotten three points as part of character creation, they've gone straight into the skills to make that character a better mech warrior. So that's had two impacts on the game. All right. First is that his character has started the game as what is basically considered an elite level operator. Um, I mean, even to the point of being beyond conventional elite. Like, if you're familiar with the BattleTech universe, he's on par with elite clansmen. Uh, from within that setting, which is which is particularly powerful. Like you now, with another player who's very familiar with Battlecheck joined the group, he was sort of like, "How are you not in some, you know, big prestigious mercenary company rather than working with us, you know, our little rough company, given your your gunnery and, and piloting skills?" Um, so yeah, he's he's an effective, he's, he's an incredibly effective character. That's fine, um, and he really has nowhere to go now because. Yeah, there is a point in Battletech where there are diminishing returns and you literally get to the point where additional points invested into a skill in the conversion to the tabletop war game actually give you no measurable benefit and he's nearly at that point so there's there's not much really room for his character to grow and develop along that particular line. Now certainly his character has multiple other deficiencies one of which is a ridiculously low charisma which is I guess the typical you know, dump stat when it comes to mid-maxes. Um, but, you know, the character can certainly develop other ways, but certainly not in that mech combat way. So that is, I think, a minor problem. You know, th- that is a situation that I can live with in most games and I've dealt with in the past and we've spoken about min-maxing players on the show in the past. So that's all good. But that leads to the second issue I've had. Okay, now that is that a- another player in the group has, who's also made a mech warrior, has really made... So that that player has followed the design intent of the system, okay, and has created an interesting character with a, with a diverse background, you know, a mixture of skills, but is really that sort of classic jack-of-all-trades, master of none, to the point that they're... You know, if you talk about in, in Battletech, you know, you, you sort of regard skill levels as being green, regular, veteran, elite. So whereas this other player is elite, this character's um, skill level really start at that green level. You know, which, at the end of the day, is, is fine because the character has a long way to develop, you know, and, and that development is part of, I think, characterization when you go from a, you know, a, a, a fresh-faced recruit up to a, a hardened veteran during the course of the campaign. Um, so no problems there. I think the character was very interesting and has a good background and I'm really looking forward to working with it. What the problem I've had is, is that the player who's min-maxed is almost targeting the player who's made this other character as being, you know, this character is useless. So, for example, because this, um, the person min-maxed is min-maxed, they haven't invested in things like rank. So the the green level of experienced character outranks them. You know, it, it's that they're, they're an officer, the other, you know, the min-max character is enlisted, uh, you know, and I'm not going to say it's not realistic to have you know, unskilled officers in the field, uh, that something can happen. Um, but, you know, it's to the point of this other character saying, well, it, why would I follow the order of this person when they clearly don't know as much as I do? You know, the rest of the group should just promote me to be an officer as well so I can lead because I've got the better skill set. You know, to the point of view that that character was having an issue, or that player was having a, 
difficulty thinking of a call sign for their character and the min-max player is like, well, I'm going to call you Barnes because you can't hit the, the broadside of Barnes with your poor skill, you know. And At the end of the day, entry-level characters in many role-playing systems are designed to be not that strong, you know. Like maybe look at things like Dark Heresy where you've got less than a 50-50 chance of achieving the skills that you were built for at character creation. That's an extreme example, but I think that a starting-level character in any game system having about a 50-50 chance in most circumstances would be about a fair starting point. Uh, and that's certainly where this, this regular character is. But the the um, min-maxing player has certainly targeted that character and made a lot of disparaging comments about it to the point that I can tell it, it's it's directly impacting the enjoyment of that player who's made a regular character. You know, they sort of said to me, oh, like, have I made, a, have I done the character wrong? Like, this, is there a problem with the character? And I'm saying, no, you know, no, you've done the character right. This is what, you know, the way the system was designed to work. That other player's made a, you know, a mid-max character. That's his way. You know that. Um, but it's gone to the point now where that, that other player said, look, you know, I, maybe I just need to rebuild my character because it's clearly causing some, some problems. And, and that's what's bothering me because I really liked where that character was as a, background as a story as a narrative that I can work with and you know by going and this play we're now wanting to retool that character to be you know closer to the veteran level of experience yeah it's taking out some of that that interest I guess in that character and and you know it's starting to affect my enjoyment of the game so we've got the point that this this player who's min maxed who is not trying to be offensive he's not trying to be rude you know he's just seen that he's made an effective character and someone has made what he sees as an ineffective character, and he's going to point that out at every opportunity. And that's affected that player's ability to enjoy the game, which is affecting my ability to enjoy the game because I, I like the character as it is. And look, I've already have supported some some little changes that have sort of kept the theme while improving the stats somewhat, but I think that the the hassle has continued somewhat as well. So, look, I mean, that's really the situation. You know, it, it, I've discussed it with a couple of friends and I've had various bits of advice on this one as well. And I think it's not going to cause people to leave the game or the whole game to collapse. It's just one of those little annoying things we have to get over at the start. So, you know, I'd be curious. I mean, you know, if someone was to ask me this exact question, I'd be saying, oh, well, you need to talk with that other, you know, that, that min-maxing player and let them know what they're doing is, is not quite... Um, conducive to everybody's enjoyment of the game and so that's something I, I plan to do as well but I haven't really got a remedial action in my head as far as like you know I can hope that he takes it on board and, and adjusts and that sort of thing but uh, yeah look if you've ever encountered this sort of situation before or or you've got some thoughts on how about how to handle it please jump onto our Facebook page or jump onto our Twitter account whatever the details are in the, at the end of the show and uh, yeah, just give me your thoughts I, I'd be interested to hear what you think and uh uh, maybe in a future show I'll let you know how it all runs out as well because um, I mean, I'm really enjoying this campaign other players are as well and I'd like to sort of get these little niggling problems behind us too so look thanks for your consideration anyway and uh, hopefully some people got some good ideas that I can use anyway I think it's time to get on to closing out the show all astropaths to the choir chamber message incoming so at this point in the show it's customary that we would go through any sort of feedback or comments that we've received in the time since the last episode uh, other than the fact I've been chatting a bit further with uh, Matthew who is the sound engineer that's offered to help us out with trying to fix some of our, our sound issues for the show which I'm really hoping to try and get bettered down properly by episode 100 um, it's been a pretty quiet period for us uh, there's been a bit of discussion here and there I think some some people had some issues with our website during the past month which as far as I can tell is working okay but uh, uh, yeah, hopefully that's definitely the case. No one else has mentioned it to me since then. 
but certainly, if you do want to contact us, there's many ways to do it. First and foremost, I'm going to be at Gen Con next week. So I think one person's already contacted me separately to see will I be there and can we catch up for a drink. But if you are going to Gen Con, you know, let us know. Jump on social media, tell us. Jump onto Twitter and or onto Facebook and say so. And I'd love to catch up with listeners at the show. I've got a lot of free time other than really covering the launch of Wrath and Glory. So yeah, I'm happy to catch up with anybody who's got the time and is around the uh, the indie area at the time. If you do want to contact us, our website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. We tweet through at grimdartpodcast. Our email address is show at grimdartpodcast.com. And uh, don't forget, we still have that voicemail link on our website. I would love to get some voicemails for the 100th show I can play on the show. So if you haven't contacted the show before, please do think about doing so. I uh, would love to hear from you, and I'll certainly edit it into our 100th show. But between now and then, we've got episode so 98, which will be our Gen Con special. Uh, so obviously, the big news there will be the launch of Wrath and Glory. Uh, we are going to go into the character creation system in depth, because that's always my favorite part of any new system. And uh, based upon your feedback, we're going to do an overview of the Skatari and uh, we'll talk about optimizing builds there, how they work in play and everything, and do one of our regular sort of career sections for the Skatari going forward. Um, I don't know whether that will be a review of Wrath and Glory just yet. I'll probably, by the time I record, I'll only have the book to really start to digest. But uh, yeah, certainly within a few episodes, we'll be doing a full review of the Wrath and Glory core book. And we'll also start talking about the other ancillary products which are come out as part of the all-in package as well. But uh, hopefully you've enjoyed the show. Sorry it's just me today. As I said, I'd rather get the show out today and talk about things like threatening tasks rather than make you wait. So uh, it will be hopefully back to normal for Gen Con, although it's only me going there. So it depends if I record a show there or wait till I come back because uh, I'm actually staying in the US for a week after Gen Con. Um, but I do have some friends that will be there that I might try and lock down to help me record a show in Mike's absence while I'm actually in the US as well. But We'll see what happens, uh, but do watch our social media pages because I'll be posting about everything I do at the show on both Twitter and Facebook as well. Less so on Google+. I'm pretty bad with Google+, but uh, hopefully if you enjoy Facebook and Twitter, you'll get a bit out of our, our coverage of the show too. Anyway, I look forward to catching you next time, and I uh, hope you enjoyed tonight's show, and we will catch you later. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Ulysses North America. 140,000, Wrath and Glory, Dark Heresy, Road Trader, Deathwatch, Black Crusade, Only War, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Ulysses North America is a trademark of Ulysses Median and Spiel Distribution GmbH. All other materials are trademarks of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grim Dark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music was composed by Jens Kostoff and is used on the license.